Well, good morning. Certainly good to be with you this morning. We are in the middle of a series entitled One Word. If you're visiting with us, and I know we have a lot of visitors this morning, we are uh, engaging in this series all year. We asked uh, our members to purchase a One Word study book that goes through daily devotionals, concentrating on one word for the week. And it all culminates on Sunday morning as we talk about that one word. And the one word this week is, of course, confess. Let me start by asking you, have you ever seen a diagram like this? Probably have at some point. How about this one? And maybe the next one. Chances are, at some point in your life, you have heard about the five steps of salvation, which are hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized, right? And more than likely, you saw these steps represented like an upward staircase. Now, this all derived from a man by the name of Walter Scott. Walter Scott actually came up with six steps of salvation, and he broke them down into two categories. He said there is man's contribution, which is faith, repentance, and baptism. And then there's God's contribution, which is remission of sins, gift of the Holy Spirit, and eternal life. I bring this up to say that every one of the steps, hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized, are absolutely 100% biblical. And you cannot talk about the salvation process from a biblical standpoint without including each of those steps. But this is man-made. We have to understand that. Walter Scott actually had six steps that were later narrowed down to five steps so that you could teach the gospel on your hand. That's why he did it. And so this handy little device became hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, right? And I, again, I bring this up because I think it's good for us at times, all the time really, to think about our methods, how we present the gospel, among other things, and understand what is man-made and what is biblical, what can change and what cannot. The message cannot, the method can. And I think it's always good to ask a couple of questions when it comes to our methods. Number one, are they still relevant? And number two, do they accurately present God's Word? You know, unfortunately, when it comes to the steps of salvation, we've had some unintended consequences. First of all, God provided a Savior, not a checklist. And I think all too often, the steps of salvation kind of present salvation in that light. It's a checklist. You check the items off the list, and then you're saved, right? Secondly, God didn't give us a staircase to climb. His Son descended from heaven to this earth. We know that we cannot earn our salvation we know that by climbing the steps, we're not earning anything, but I think sometimes we can leave that impression if we're not careful. And finally, the biggest issue, really, that we should have with this method is that belief, repentance, and confession are not steps. And so we inaccurately define them when we talk about steps of salvation. Because we give the impression that faith is a step, you leave that step, and you move on to the next one, which was repentance, and then you move on to the next one, which is confession. You're climbing a staircase, and when you climb a staircase, you leave one step, and you go to the next. You never leave faith. 
Faith is not a step that you leave behind, nor is repentance, nor is confession. The only one of those that could be accurately maybe defined as a step is baptism, because if you engaged in it in a scriptural manner, you should only do it one time, right? But the rest of those are not steps. You will always have faith. You will always be repenting. You will always be confessing. That brings us to our word this morning, which is confession. When we talk about confession, I think out of all these steps of salvation, it's the one that has suffered the most. Because when we talk about confess or confession, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, it's a statement you make right before you get baptized, right? We get you up here, we ask you, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins? And you say yes, and we say, now we're going to baptize you. And that's it. That's the definition of confession. If you come from a different part of the religious world, you might see confession as sitting down in front of a priest and telling him your sins, but you get the idea, right? Confession, for us, is a one-time statement made prior to baptism. And yet, that is not how confession is presented in Scripture. Yes, it's important to confess Jesus as Lord, and yes, it does have its place in the plan of salvation, but it is not a one-time deal. It is not a one-shot thing. No, confession is something that we will continue to do throughout our lives. Let's look at a few passages. First of all, Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now look at Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 36. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. This time, John chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Do you notice anything in just those three passages that we read that sticks out to you that are similar? I mean, if you look at those three passages, and we could go forward, but we'll take those three. If you look at those three passages, you see something, or you should, that sticks out. And that is, whether it's the eunuch, whether it's the apostles, whether it's, whether it's Mary, or Martha, excuse me, whoever, they all said the same thing, didn't they? If you notice that, they all said the same thing. They all acknowledged who Jesus Christ is. Peter, the Ethiopian eunuch, Martha, all confessed the same thing. They all professed their belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and that's what confession is. That's the definition. It's to speak the same thing. In the Greek language, it's homologio, homos meaning same, and lego meaning to speak. In a literal sense, homologio means to speak that which agrees with something that others speak or maintain. 
confession expresses our agreement with what God holds and declares to be true. Now, confession can also refer to an admission of guilt. You know, you feel bad about something and you confess it. The Bible presents it as such, where you confess your sins to one another. It can also be related to our proclaiming or professing something like the gospel. But what we see in the three passages of Scripture that we just read is that Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his character, who he is, all acknowledge that. They all spoke the same thing. Peter, the Ethiopian eunuch Martha, they all said the same thing. Because confession is a statement of faith that comes from a conviction of the heart. Confessing is about telling the world that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, that He was crucified, He died, He was buried, and He rose again, and someday He's coming back. Yes, we make that statement before we are baptized, but that is a confession that we will continue to make throughout our lives. Or at least we should. We believe this with all our hearts. And because we believe it with all our hearts, because it has infiltrated our heart, we can't help but speak about it. We are declaring with our mouths what we are showing with our lives, that we are willing to follow our Lord at all costs. Confessing is not simply reciting some pious or churchy terminology. Confession is saying, I believe. I believe with all my heart. And not only do I believe it, not only do I speak it, I live it in my daily life. In simplest terms, confession is faith spoken. Let me ask you this. What, what if you had a famous relative or friend? You're pretty close to them. You would take every opportunity you had to talk about that, wouldn't you? To anyone that would listen, you would probably drop that name. Well, you know, I'm related to so-and-so, or, you know, so-and-so is one of my best friends. We went to school together. We were best friends. You would name drop at every opportunity you had to anyone that would listen, right? Maybe you would show them a text that you got from them, or a birthday card that you received from them, or a, a selfie that you took with them, and say, look how close we are. This real famous person, they're my friend. We're We're related. But conversely, what if you had a relative who was not all that famous, in fact was infamous, maybe a relative that lived under a bridge, who was homeless, because of an addiction to drugs or alcohol, they, they panhandle on the corner, and you probably wouldn't brag on them, you might even want to avoid them like the plague. My point being that we have a close relative or friend in Jesus Christ? Do we acknowledge him as such? He is powerful, famous, if you will, and yet he lowered himself, emptied himself, so that he could die for our sins. Do we acknowledge that? Do we acknowledge this friend or brother of ours? Maybe we don't think that it's so important right now. I mean, he knows how I feel. I mean, I pray to him at night. I just don't mention him all the time in public because that can, you know, that can cause some issues. I certainly don't talk about him at work because you shouldn't bring politics or religion into work, right? But he knows how I feel. 
But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 32 and following. He says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Christians don't have the right to remain silent. We must keep on professing, keep on declaring, and keep on proclaiming who Jesus is and what he has done for us. When Jesus confesses a person before his Father, he claims him as his own and he pleads his cause. And that's exactly what we do when we profess or confess Jesus to others. We claim him as our own. We plead his cause. We are his voice of truth. We are his mouthpiece for declaring the good news, the gospel. So again, confession is not a one-time statement made prior to baptism. Confession is a lifestyle. It's also a salvation issue. Did you notice that? If you are unwilling to confess Jesus, then he's not going to confess you. If you deny him, he will deny you. In this life, we have the opportunity to either acknowledge Jesus or deny him by what we do and what we say or what we don't do or what we don't say. And it's not just our mouth that speaks. It's our lives as well. Our conduct reflects our confession. Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. We cannot profess Jesus with our mouths and yet deny him with the way that we live. 1 John 2 and 4 states, The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. You can say all the right things, but if it's not supported by a Christian lifestyle or righteous living, then, then your words are hollow. I mean, if words were enough, then Jesus didn't have to say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. You see, true confession is an expression of the heart, not just the mouth. Jesus also said this. He said, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak they shall give an accounting of on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Pretty scary passage of Scripture there when you think about it. The words that we speak are a product of the heart. They reflect our spiritual condition. Our faith must be smoke, spoken, but not just in word, but in deed as well. Not just by what we say, but how we live. A saving relationship with Jesus Christ is something that we acknowledge continually over the span of our lives. It's how we live. It's what we say. Remember, we say it all the time. You must live out your baptism. And living out our baptism certainly includes confessing daily, declaring to the world who we belong to and why. And I think... That's the reason why I have such an issue with the sinner's prayer. This idea that all you have to do is say a prayer and let Jesus into your heart and you'll be saved. Now set aside for a moment that the sinner's prayer is not found anywhere in the Bible. Set aside for the moment that this concept that I can be saved just by reciting some 
prayer and letting Jesus in my heart is not in the Bible. You will not find a single instance of any individual who was initially saved by praying. Okay? So set that aside for just a moment. Is confession linked to salvation? Yes. Absolutely. Does confession have a rightful place in the plan of salvation as presented in Scripture? Absolutely. Without question. Is it sufficient for salvation? No, it's not. And here's why. You don't pray a prayer to be saved. And this nebulous, vague idea of letting Jesus into your heart is not a substitute for repentance or baptism. I mean, baptism is where we contact the blood of Christ, right? I mean, you think of Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus prayed for three days after arriving at the city of Damascus. Some say Saul of Tarsus is an example of one who prayed and was saved. And if that's the case, he was the most miserable saved man that you will ever encounter in the Bible. Of course, we know he wasn't saved because he was later told to get up and be baptized and have your sins washed away. You see, determining confession's proper place in God's plan of redemption starts with a proper question. And that question is very simple. What must I do to be saved? That is a question that each and every person should ask themselves. It is the most important question anyone could ever ask. And so when people come to me and they say, Chris, what do I have to do to be a part of your church? What do I have to do to be Church of Christ? And I say, it's not about being a part of my church. It's not about being Church of Christ. It's asking and answering the question, what must I do to be saved? And along with that, what does it mean to be a New Testament Christian in the New Testament church? That's it, right? At its base level, that's what it's about. So when we go to the Bible to answer the question, what must I do to be saved? We have to accurately handle the Word of God. We have to look at Scripture to say, what is God saying? Not what do I want God to say. What is God saying? And so, we see that, for instance, in Romans 10, 9 and 10, when it stands alone, when you pluck it out of context, it seems to be giving validation to this sinner's prayer concept, right? That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, if you want to know Paul's thoughts on baptism, just go over four chapters to Romans chapter 6, okay? You'll find it very plainly. But taken in isolation, this seems to answer our question, doesn't it? What must I do to be saved? Well, here it is. However, we should all strive to be the best Bible students we can possibly be. We cannot afford to be lazy when it comes to studying Scripture. And too many people, too many Christians even, have done this. One of the ways that we get lazy is by proof texting our way through Scripture. And we even do that in our own brotherhood. But we've got to look at Romans 10, 9, and 10 within the context of what is Paul addressing here. 
Some say, well, you don't have to be baptized because Paul says it right here. All you have to do is say a prayer and let Jesus into your heart. Okay, but Paul is not answering the question, do I have to be baptized? That's not on his radar. He is talking to people who have been baptized. So that's not the question he is answering. Paul is answering a question, and you know what question it is? Are we saved by law or saved by grace? That's the question. And he is refuting those who say that you are saved by law. And he's saying, if that's what you believe, you are rejecting the gospel. You are rejecting Jesus Christ. The gospel has come through Jesus, and those who respond to the message, both Jew and Gentile, will be saved. That's what the context is speaking of. And as I said, every child of God should seek to be the best Bible student he can possibly be. Don't take my word for it. Don't take a professor's word for it. Don't even take your grandma's word for it. Go to the Bible. Go to Scripture and ask yourself the question, what is God trying to say? Again, not what do I want him to say, what do other people say he's saying, what do I want the Bible to say is not a valid question. What's valid is what is God saying? And when we look to answer the question, what must I do to be saved, we have to dig. We have to be true to the text. We have to be true to context. Think about how this question is answered in other places. Think about how the question, what must I do to be saved, is answered in other places. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And what does Jesus tell him? Well, one thing you lack, go and sell off everything you own, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me, right? That's the answer. The Philippian jailer asked the apostles, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. When Paul, who was Saul, asked the question, what shall I do, Lord? He was told, get up, go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that has been appointed for you to do. And he arrives at Damascus. He's introduced to a man by the name of Ananias who says to him, now why do you delay? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. On the day of Pentecost, there were many there who were pricked to the heart, it says, in Acts chapter 2. And they asked, brethren, what must we do? And they were told to repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Okay, so what's the answer? What's the correct answer? What must I do to be saved? Do I need to go sell off everything I own, give it to the poor, and then follow Jesus? Do I just need to believe? Do I need to go to Damascus? Is that where I start? The very idea that this question is answered different ways in different places should show us, if nothing else, that there's not just one answer, right? I mean, that's what you have to deduce from this, right? So, when we look at the answer to the question, we have to think about this. Sometimes, we can answer a question with a good answer, but not the best answer. You believe that? Somebody asked me, so who do you think is going to win the game? And I say, whatever team scores more points. Is that a good answer? Yeah. Is it a right answer? Sure it is. Is it the best answer? Maybe not. Because I figure the person who is asking me that question doesn't want a smart aleck answer like that. I figure the person who is asking that question wants to know my theory wants to know who I think is going to win, and why do you think they're going to win, right? So if someone asks me, what must I do to be saved, and I say, confess, is that a good answer? Yeah, it is. Is it a right answer? Absolutely it is. Is it the best answer? 
Nope. And you know why? Because it's incomplete. Because the Bible doesn't say that all you have to do to be saved is confess. It may be a good answer, it may even be a right answer, but it's not the best answer. Because the best answer is to look at Scripture as a whole to see how this question is answered in other places. And in other places we see that you're to have faith or believe. We see that you are to repent. We see that baptism is absolutely essential to salvation. And then, of course, we see that confession is important to that process as well. By the way, we also find that living faithfully is important, that you're not saved one time for all time. So sometimes a good answer isn't the best answer, right? But here's what it really boils down to. Is Jesus your king? I mean, let's just boil it down to that. If you care about what Scripture says, if you truly are a diligent Bible student and you want to know what the Word of God has to say, you're going to reach the conclusion that I need to do what Jesus has said. I need to follow what God has said. I need to make Jesus Lord of my life. He is my King, and I acknowledge Him as such. I live my life in such a way that I confess to anyone and everyone who will listen that Jesus is King of my life and that He can be King of your life. He sits on the throne of my heart, and therefore he dictates everything that I say and everything that I do. That's the context of, context of Romans 10, 9, and 10. You realize that? That's the context. Romans 10, 9, and 10 is, is Jesus your king? That's the question. And Paul is saying that everyone who swears allegiance to Jesus as king is a part of his kingdom. It doesn't matter if you've been circumcised. doesn't matter if you keep the Sabbath. doesn't matter about any of those things of old. What matters is if Jesus is your king. Because if Jesus is your king, then you're saved. And keep in mind that Paul's words in Romans chapter 10 was written to people who had been baptized. You've got to ask the right questions. Paul wasn't asking the question, do you have to be baptized? That's not the question that he was approaching. Some want to make it the question, but that's not the question. And over and over again, Paul is addressing, are you living out your baptism? Remember your baptism. You are never done obeying the gospel. Paul is writing to Christians in Rome, which further reiterates that confession is not a one-time statement prior to baptism, but rather, confession is a lifestyle. It's not reciting a sinner's prayer. It is a continuous declaration and acknowledgement of our friend and king. And by the way, just as a side note, if we know that's what Paul is addressing, isn't it interesting that you never see any sign of people sipping up or, or, or speaking up and saying, yeah, but wait, do we really have to be baptized? Never seemed to be an issue. They understood what they had to do, and they did it. You know, back in uh, the 90s, you might remember a baseball player by the name of Brett Butler. Brett Butler played for the San Francisco Giants. He gave them his heart and his soul. He was, he was a beloved figure in San Francisco. The fans there loved him because he played with such grit and such determination. But he became a free agent, and he signed with the Los Angeles Dodgers. If you know anything about Major League Baseball, you probably know that the Giants and the Dodgers are fierce rivals. Can't stand each other. And so 
Brett Butler goes to the Dodgers, signs as a free agent, and during the season, the Dodgers come to San Francisco to play the Giants, and they're introducing the rosters, and Brett Butler gets introduced, and to everyone's surprise, the Giant fans stood up, and they gave him a standing ovation. They appreciated his time with their team. They appreciated his determination and for him giving his heart and soul to helping them win ballgames. But as the fans were standing up and cheering their once beloved Brett Butler, he did a strange thing. He turns around and he goes over and he hugs his new manager, Tommy Lasorda. The Giants could not stand Tommy Lasorda. They hated that guy. He had stuck a stake in their heart so many times and beaten them, they could not stand Tommy Lasorda. And after the game, they interviewed Brett Butler. It's as if he spit in the face of the fans that were applauding him. And they asked him, why did you do that? And he said, I'm a Dodger now. And I want everyone to know what side I'm on. My friends, everyone must know what side we're on. There should be no room left for doubt at the office, at school, wherever it is. People should have no doubt as to what side we're on. Some may look at us and say, well, you know, they're not much different. I mean, yeah, they go to church, but I mean, they still embrace us. They still embrace the world, so things aren't much different. No, you need to leave the world behind, and people need to see that your life reflects something different, different priorities, a different way of life. You have a different destination, and you are certainly confessing something different. Every opportunity you have, whether in word or in deed, you are showing the world around you what side you're on. Let the world have no doubt. You stand with Jesus Christ. That's confession. Let us know if we can help you this morning. If you're struggling this morning, if you're ready to confess Jesus and put on Christ in baptism and live a life of confession, do that this morning. David's going to lead us in a song, Come As We Stand and As We Sing.